Please be advised this podcast contains mature language and subject matter that includes descriptions of sexual assault. It's an early June morning in 2016, a quiet Tuesday at Drake Stadium on the UCLA campus. A handful of runners are doing laps. Others are stretching and getting ready for their workouts. It seems like any other day. But then a man in his early 30s walks into the scene and shatters the quiet. How many boys have you molested in your life? I know at least five, maybe six. It's David O'Boyle, the former UCLA student who trained under Conrad. This guy molests young boys. He takes advantage of them and manipulates them like he molested me. David's come to the track to confront Conrad. How do you do it? How do you get these boys to believe in you so much? David's holding up his phone, pointing it right at his former coach and getting it all on tape. Conrad doesn't say a word. He just keeps trying to walk away. You're you're incredible. Total master manipulator. So you've refined your craft over 40, 50 years. It's been a decade since David says Conrad molested him. At this same track, in plain sight. Just a few days earlier, David had found Tim DeSanto's blog. As he read the comments from dozens of men, he grew angrier and angrier. Some said they were as young as 14 when they were abused. And that's what brought him back to UCLA on this Tuesday morning. Doesn't that keep you up at night? Knowing that you're using people? Knowing that people believe in you and that you're using them to satisfy your own sick need? David sounds almost calm behind the camera, but even though you can't see him, you can still feel his intensity. Conrad's wearing a track jacket and a white baseball cap. He's carrying a full-size umbrella, and he takes a few swipes at David. You trying to hit me? Now you got you on camera hitting me. You're going to fucking jail. Am I in your personal space? Am I not dedicated enough for you? Conrad tries to walk away, but David stays with him for 12 long, tense minutes. It's over for you. Can you get that through your head? There's not gonna be any more. There's not gonna be any more boys. For ESPN, I'm your host, Mike Kessler. This is The Running Man. In the last episode, we told you about Tim DeSanto's travel blog, which exposed Conrad and set off an unlikely chain of events. Today, in our final episode, it all comes crashing down on him. I am on a mission to take back a small part of what was taken from me. I told him the whole story. There was a police interview, and they recorded it. Mr. Manwaring, Mr. Manwaring, my name is Mark Fainaruwada. I'm a reporter at ESPN. This is episode four, Confronting Conrad. When David O'Boyle left the UCLA track that day, He wasn't sure if he accomplished anything. But, in fact, his confrontation with Conrad had just become a key moment in time. It was one event in a series of events that had to unfold at exactly the right moment and in exactly the right way to bring Conrad one step closer to justice. After David left Drake Stadium, he went straight to UCLA campus police. And filed a police report um, for sexual battery and for 
battery for that what took place that day where he was hitting me with the, with the uh, umbrella, just in hopes that it would be a catalyst for some sort of investigation about this guy. A few weeks later, UCLA PD called him. They let me know that I was outside of the statute of limitations, so I, I couldn't press charges for sexual battery. I could only do it for battery, and that case was uh, later, I guess, dismissed because it wasn't significant enough, I guess. But momentum was starting to build around exposing Conrad. The comments were piling up on the blog, and the community of men was taking shape. After the call with UCLA PD, David wrote a letter to UCLA officials. He told them Conrad was a threat and that they needed to take him seriously. David told some of the other accusers what he'd done, and a few of them also wrote letters to UCLA. So UCLA administration started investigating, and later that summer, they sent Conrad a letter. Here's my reporting partner, Mark Feiner-Ruwada, reading from it. We recently received several complaints that you utilized as an alleged training strategy inappropriate massaging of the genital region of male athletes. We have received several complaints that the athletes consider this touching as an assault. We got a copy of this letter through a public records request. One thing it made clear, UCLA PD had interviewed Conrad. And when cops asked about the allegations, he didn't exactly deny them. Here's what the letter said. When interviewed by UCLA PD on August 1st, 2016, You acknowledge the nature of this physical contact on more than one occasion, although you indicated it may have been inadvertent. I'm going to repeat that. Conrad acknowledged that the inappropriate touching, massaging men's genitals did happen, but he claimed it was inadvertent, an accident. The letter ended by telling Conrad he was banned from the track and all of UCLA. He could be arrested if he so much as set foot on campus. It was a victory, but not a big one. After all, Conrad wasn't on staff at UCLA. He could just go train his squad somewhere else. To all the guys who'd found each other on this blog, kicking Conrad off campus felt like he was just getting a slap on the wrist. They wanted to expose him in a bigger way. They wanted him brought to justice. Early in our reporting, we heard from a man named Bob Druger. Bob grew up in Syracuse. He went to high school there and then to the university. He was really into sports. He wasn't a star athlete, but he was on the track team in high school and college. I was an underachiever. I'd be much better in practice than I did in in the meets. I would just choke. Bob was in high school when he first met Conrad. He remembers him being some kind of sports psychologist. There were like little counseling rooms in the guidance counselor's office around there. He He would work with kids. In the fall of 2018, we visited Bob at home, just outside of Syracuse. His place sits on several acres just off a country road, secluded and surrounded by woods. Bob described how Conrad molested him several times. He said it even happened at his high school. The thing with me is, who the hell got him in that office? You know, I know there there was abusive things in an office, like he jerked me off in the office during the middle of school, in the school day, you know? Today, Bob's in his 50s. He's an eye surgeon, married, with kids and a bunch of dogs. By the time we met him, Bob was on a mission to expose Conrad. He'd been quietly following the blog for a while. And when he heard about our reporting, he called me. Over the phone, he sounded really shaken. At that point, he hadn't even told his wife. But after we hung up, he decided to start opening up about it. I mean, I tried to explain it to my wife, and 
how that happened like that, but that's it's sort of hard to explain. Bob didn't have a plan. He just knew he'd buried this awful experience as a kid, and now it was bubbling back up. He was really angry. And so, when we finally met him, months later, we were sitting on his back porch on a sunny, breezy day under some wind chimes, and Bob said something that really stuck with us. It was like finding out the Wizard of Oz is only the sky behind the curtain. You know, and instead of getting a courage, a heart, or a brain, you found out he was a child, a child predator and abused you 40 years ago. Bob became a go-to guy for information among Conrad's squad members. He started a group email to connect them all. He read to us from one of the emails he'd sent. In some ways, I feel like a part of me is trapped at age 15. But I cannot go back and undo that. I am not a vindictive person, but the more I learn, the more angry I get. I, was on a, I am on a mission to take back a small part of what was taken from me. We spent about three hours with Bob that day, and toward the end of our time together, he told us something pretty interesting. Not long before our visit, he'd been at a bar mitzvah where he wound up talking to a federal prosecutor who happened to specialize in sex crimes. Bob didn't think there was much he could do after all these years, but he felt desperate for some sort of justice. So he told her about Conrad and asked if there might be a case to be made. The prosecutor had some advice. She told Bob, Even if you don't want to come out probably... First of all, you should come out publicly. These things need to be spoken about. And it's horrible what happened. And it's difficult. But the more public you are, the more public other people are going to be. And this thing sounds horrible, and it's got to come forward. She put him in touch with the FBI in New York. But they told him there was nothing they could do. The statute of limitations had expired decades ago. But when Bob told them Conrad was living in L.A. and still coaching, they put him in touch with the FBI there. And then... Bob dropped it on us. The FBI in L.A. had tipped off the LAPD, and now LAPD was investigating Conrad. We almost didn't believe it at first. Bob hadn't told anyone about Conrad for nearly 40 years until he called us. But after that, he decided he might as well go big with it. He told his wife, his kids, then the prosecutor at the bar mitzvah, FBI agents, and finally, the LAPD. So, yes, there really was an active police investigation into Conrad. My unit at Robbery Homicide Division handles primarily high-profile cases, serial cases, sexual assaults involving home invasions, robberies, kidnapped by gunpoint. And we handle cases that just are so big that they would tax the resources of the divisions. That's Detective Charlene Johnson of the LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division. Bob had spoken with Detective Johnson and her partner, Danetta Menifee. He told them everything he knew, and then he connected them to others, guys like Tim DeSanto, John Shapiro, and David O'Boyle. But the investigation hit a major roadblock right away. The statute of limitations in California for offenses like these is only three years. So initially, there was very little we could do other than to listen to the victims and take their reports because when we don't have a case that's in statute, we can't pursue prosecution. Johnson and her partner had a significant problem. They needed a more recent accuser. In some ways, Mark and I were working on parallel tracks with the LAPD. We were all looking for as many possible victims as we could find, and the list of men from decades ago was still growing. 
But we'd heard there were more recent cases, and we were trying to track them down. We wanted to show how long this had been going on. Then we got a call from one of our sources. He said he had somebody we needed to talk to. A young guy, just 22 years old. A couple days later, I met him at a sports bar in L.A. Even though I knew he was young, I was kind of caught off guard. Most of the other guys we'd talked to had been in their 40s or 50s, and they told us about being abused as kids. But this guy, he still was a kid. We got a couple of beers. He picked it a plate of fries as he told me about Conrad. Of course, he didn't know him as Conrad. He introduced himself as Coach Avondale. We're going to call this young man Benjamin because he's not ready to go public. We've spoken with him a lot and we recorded some of those interviews. So you're going to hear his exact words, but we're using someone else to speak on his behalf. Benjamin said he first met Conrad in 2016. Everything with this guy was more on the side of secretive. Benjamin wasn't on the UCLA track team, but he was pretty fast. He grew up here in the U.S., but his parents are from another country where he has citizenship. So he was hoping to make that country's national team, just like Conrad had done when he ran for Antigua back in 76. And he says it so casually. It's always like, uh, oh yeah, I've been to the Olympics. I've coached multiple Olympic athletes. Benjamin said he was almost spellbound by Conrad. He was one of the most interesting men I've ever met. He comes across as some cross between a wizard and like a wise old grandpa and maybe a guru. Benjamin told me he trained with Conrad for a few months before he was abused. He said the abuse only happened once, but it was so upsetting that he wrote it down in his journal. He pulled it out and started reading it to me. It was Monday, June 27th, around 7.10 p.m. Practice ended and coach gave me a ride back to the co-op. He said he'd be finding parking while I ate dinner and took a shower. He'd then give me therapy in my room. At Benjamin's student apartment, Conrad told him to lie down on the bed. He said he'd start with the deep muscles on his upper leg and work his way down. He proceeded to do a relaxation thing with me where he told me to close my eyes as he counted down from 10 to one slowly. Then he began his therapy on the groin area. Eventually, he worked his hands under my underwear, claiming that in order to get the deep muscles, you need direct contact with the skin. Conrad told Benjamin he needed to learn to control his erections, to conjure one up or down at will. He said the exercise would improve his focus and his testosterone levels. He mentioned numerous times that the like the Eastern, like Eastern European athletes and coaches did this all the time. And the Greeks used to do this, and like this is normal. Benjamin said this sort of clinical talk went on for a while as Conrad began touching his genitals a little bit at a time. Asking for my feedback on sensations for about 10 to 15 minutes until eventually he was just jacking me off. When it was over, Benjamin laid there stunned, confused. After Conrad left, Benjamin kept trying to make sense of it all. Did the Greeks really do this? He looked online but he couldn't find anything. And then, even though he didn't feel right, Benjamin said he got up the next morning and went back to work out with Conrad, just like Tim DeSanto and John Shapiro and so many others had before. It all sounded so sadly familiar to me. By this point, Mark and I had heard this story so many times that we knew what each guy was going to tell us before he could even finish saying it. But then, 
Benjamin dropped a lightning bolt. He said when he was warming up at the track the next morning, a guy showed up and confronted Conrad. This guy recorded the whole thing. He even walked right up to Benjamin and warned him about Conrad. And Benjamin still remembered his name, David O'Boyle. David described his story, and it was nauseatingly similar to mine. Mine that had happened only nine hours before. Sitting in this huge sports bar, I was trying to process it all. Benjamin was there that day? The day that David O'Boyle had gone after Conrad? He was one of the squad members just a few feet off camera? He said a lot more to us, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Things like, I trusted this guy, thought it was okay, but what he did to me fucked me up for the next 10 years. Benjamin took a few laps, but he was too distracted, so he left. Later that day, Conrad called him and told him David was just some disgruntled former athlete. Benjamin was pretty much alone at that point. He didn't know about the blog. Actually, until that day, he didn't even know Conrad's full name. He just knew him as Coach Avondale. After a couple of weeks, he worked up the nerve to tell his parents. Like, from their point of view, like, uh, what the fuck? Like, is that normal? Like, is this okay? Like, file a police report. Like, like arrest this guy. At the sports bar, Benjamin told me the whole story kind of nonchalantly. He just ate his french fries and stated the facts. And then he dropped another bombshell. He'd reported Conrad to UCLA police, just like David O'Boyle had done a few weeks earlier. So campus police had received two separate complaints from two separate men within weeks of each other, saying they'd been abused by Conrad. But there was one key difference. Benjamin reported his abuse just weeks after it happened. I told him the whole story. There was a police interview, and they recorded it. But he said UCLA police told him he didn't have a case. They, at the time, said, I don't know if there's much that we can do, given that you're 20. You're over 18. And so legally, there's consent, I guess. Except to Benjamin, this was not a case of consent. To him, it was a case of being coerced, of being duped, of being fooled into letting this man touch him. And it turns out, that is against the law. It wouldn't have mattered if Benjamin was 20 or 50. If the perpetrator says it serves a professional purpose, that's a crime. It's called sexual battery by fraud. We still don't know why UCLA PD didn't charge Conrad. They declined to speak to us. By the time Benjamin and I met in person, it had been a couple of years since his alleged abuse. I asked him to look at his journal again and tell me the date. It was Monday, June 27th, around 7.10 p.m. I did the math in my head. The incident was in June of 2016. We were talking in December of 2018. That's only two and a half years. That meant his case was still in statute, but only for another six months. I asked Benjamin if he knew anything about a current police investigation into Conrad. He didn't. So I told him about Detective Johnson. He said he wasn't sure if he was ready to talk to the police. But a few weeks later, he called me and asked for her number. Back at LAPD, Detective Johnson and her partner were discovering more alleged victims. 
but they still couldn't find anybody within the statute of limitations. They were starting to worry they wouldn't have a case. But then, Johnson's phone rang. It was Benjamin. I would say it's akin to uh, almost excitement. Like, finally, I've got an in-statute case. I can do something with this. But Johnson realized she didn't have much time. Knowing that the statute of limitations was closer than I would have liked, uh, it did put a time crunch, which meant I had to work a little bit faster. And that wasn't the only challenge she and her partner faced. Even if they could bring charges, it was possible that Conrad might only face a single misdemeanor count. Not much more than UCLA had done when they banned him from campus. But if they could establish a pattern of abuse, even if the incidents were well outside the statute of limitations, they might be able to convince the DA to file a felony charge. So they kept reaching out to possible victims. Can you give us a sense of how many guys you've spoken with? I've probably spoken personally between 10 to 15. And how many more are you aware of you think that are out there? couple of dozen, at least. At least a dozen more. At least a couple of dozen. By the spring of 2019, we'd also spoken with dozens of men who said Conrad sexually abused them. Pretty soon, we were going to have to go to him for comment. We'd be publishing some serious allegations. We wanted to give him a chance to tell his side of the story. But it wasn't that simple. A lot of the guys we talked to said that if Conrad knew the press was onto him, he might disappear. It would have been bad enough to send the guy into hiding, but if we did that while LAPD was investigating, that would be even worse. So we waited, and finally, one day in March of 2019, we called Detective Johnson and made sure we wouldn't be getting in the way. For months, we'd been debating when and how to first approach Conrad. Should we call him, email him? go to his apartment. We were doing a written story and a TV piece. So if he was going to talk, we needed to get him on camera. And we figured we'd only have one shot. So on an overcast spring morning last March, with cameras in tow, we went to a track in South Los Angeles where we knew Conrad was training with his squad. It was quiet and foggy and kind of eerie. A few joggers and walkers were doing laps. Unlike David O'Boyle, we found Conrad alone, probably waiting for one of his athletes. He was 67 at this point and using a walker. Microphone check. Mark had the job of approaching Conrad. We mic'd him up in a car, just a few yards away from where Conrad was sitting. I think we just go up and approach him. The plan was for the crew to hang back, except for one guy with a small camera. And if Conrad said he'd talk, then the rest of us would come over. All right, let's go. As we got out of the car and walked toward the track, Everything seemed to slow down and speed up at once. It was so surreal to be confronting this elusive figure after a year of thinking about him, day in and day out. He was no longer a ghost. Conrad was right there, in front of us. Mark strolled up to him and reached out his hand. Mr. Manwaring. Mr. Manwaring, my name is Mark Fainaruwada. I'm a reporter at ESPN. At this point, to everyone's surprise... Conrad sprung up and rushed toward the parking lot. For a 67-year-old using a walker, he was really fast. So what you're about to hear is Mark, me, and the crew basically running after Conrad. He was so fast that our cameraman and photographer had to sprint ahead so they could get a better angle on him. Can you please talk to us? To a bystander, it must have looked strange, 
A bunch of people with cameras swarming this elderly man with a walker. It wasn't the best look, but we'd been on this story for a year, and the allegations against Conrad were extremely credible. So we kept chasing him across the lot, and Mark kept asking him questions. We're, we're working on a story about you. There's, there's many men who suggest that you abuse them, sexually abuse them. Mark showed Conrad a picture of him at Camp Greylock with Michael Waxman, the guy who told us he'd been abused at age 13. Do you recognize this man? Here's a picture of you with him. Conrad kept moving, but Mark stayed with him. We're not trying to be difficult with you. We just want to have a chance to give you your perspective. Tell us your story. I know a lot of people think journalists do this all the time, but actually we don't. Our adrenaline was pumping. We have more than 40 men who say they were abused as young men or boys by you at Camp Greylock, Colgate, Syracuse, around UCLA. Conrad kept going, the wheels of his walker rattling on the pavement. Can you tell us why David O'Boyle confronted you at the UCLA track? Can you tell us why Michael Waxman says you abused him at Camp Greylock? He pulled the hood of his jacket over his head and tried to hide his face. These men say you told them that this was a, a treatment to help them perform better. Can you explain the treatment? As we got toward the other end of the lot, Conrad finally spoke. It's a little tough to hear, but he tells Mark, there's no story here. As you can see, this is not a story. Well, it is this a story. Is, this is harassment. We're not trying to harass look you. At this, look at this. I know, but we, well, because you're running Cameras? from us. Cameras? You're running from us. We don't want to hear anything. We want to hear exactly. No. We can put the camera. If you did, you wouldn't do this. We can sit absolutely, down. let's sit down. Let's sit down. We'll put, we'll, we will put the cameras away. Let's sit down and have a conversation. We turned the cameras off, but that didn't work either. Conrad still wouldn't talk. So we left. The whole scene lasted maybe 10 minutes. Later, I emailed Conrad a couple of times. I called both phone numbers I had for him and even left a note at his apartment. We never heard from him. But soon, Conrad had much bigger things to worry about than us. Three months later, in mid-June of 2019, just before the statute of limitations expired on Benjamin's case, the LAPD detectives made their plea to the DA. They said they had a serial predator on their hands, a man who'd spun a deceitful tale of abuse and gotten away with it for nearly 50 years, and whose alleged victims were severely damaged. Many of these men are still dealing with this today. They have... A lot of them have been through uh, therapy to try to get past what happened to them. Some of them have succeeded, but others, they're still dealing with it emotionally and mentally. A few days later, on the morning of June 19th, LAPD officers knocked on the door at Conrad's apartment and placed him under arrest. He was charged with one count, one felony count, of sexual battery by fraud. He didn't resist. There was no SWAT team. They just read him his rights and took him to jail. On the record, court's going to call number 10 on the court's calendar, SA100754, and that's Conrad Maine Warren. He's present before the next morning, he appeared in court wearing a green collared shirt, khaki pants, and sunglasses. Conrad faced up to four years in prison. He pleaded not guilty, and within 48 hours, he made bail. Six weeks later, our TV segment aired, and we published the full account of our investigation on ESPN.com. 
Within 24 hours, our story had nearly 1.5 million views. Finally, after nearly 50 years, Conrad Avondale Mainwaring was exposed. Nisha Zenoff was sitting at her home in Tiburon when her son Andrew called to give her the news of Conrad's arrest. I felt like it was one of the happiest moments of my life. We introduced you to Nisha in the first episode. Her older son, Victor, had fallen to his death in a hiking accident just days after telling Nisha he'd been abused by Conrad at Camp Greylock. So much had happened since the first time Mark interviewed Nisha, nine months earlier. We felt like we needed to go back to her to see how she was feeling. She was sitting a few feet from Mark on the same big couch in her home with her yellow lab pumpkin by her side. But right before they started talking, Nisha sprung up. There was something she wanted to have with her for the interview. You wanted Victor with us. Yes, I have a a photograph of Victor when he was 17. And um, I love to have his photograph right here with us since we'll be talking about his life, part of his experience. She put the framed photo on the coffee table right in front of them. It's just a close-up of his beautiful, smiling, handsome face. One of the last ones taken um, before he died. It had been 39 years since Victor confided in Nisha about Conrad, when he gave his mom a window into why his life had become such a struggle. And then, days later, he was gone. Nisha had vowed to get Conrad if it was the last thing she did. And now, here she was, in the wake of his arrest. It was bittersweet. When I realized he had gotten into jail and I felt so relieved, and then hearing that he had, had been bailed out of jail, the disappointment and hoping that he will get his he will get his um, punishment. And yet, a part of me actually, I feel bad for him. Isn't that weird? Why do you feel badly for him? Because he, he is a very sick person. He's a very sick person. And a normal, healthy person would know that what he was doing was criminal. Nisha wrote a book about trying to move on after Victor's death. She called it The Unspeakable Loss. She wrote it to help other parents get through the death of a child. And for her, at least, part of that process was finding compassion for Conrad. I really hope he can get peace inside himself. And acknowledge the truth that how many people he hurt. I think the way to get peace inside himself is to be really truthful about the pain and the suffering that he's caused so many people. Nisha told Mark she sees Victor perpetually as a child, the way he was before he died. A handsome, loving, nurturing boy who wanted the best for others. Andrew, though... He can't help but imagine his brother as a grown man. Victor would be uh, 57. We talk about it a lot, actually. Whenever we get together and we bring up my brother, all the time we dream about what he would be like. And we all believe that he'd be married and have at least four kids. (laughs) So, yeah. He probably would have done something with nature, like could have been like a forest ranger or something where he was spending a lot of time in nature because he loved nature and loved the outdoors. I think it's important to take a minute to single out Andrew here. He was the one who called me, but he also called other accusers and convinced them to speak with us. He never gave up on getting justice for Victor. He never gave up on catching Conrad. 
And when he learned that Conrad had been arrested? I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was so, oh, I, 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 there, it, there was this huge sort of goosebumps of relief and just like, oh my God, this is happening. It's actually happening. And it, it was like seeing your intention materialize and manifest. And for such an important cause, it was just so much yes. There was a lot of jubilation. He says Victor would find comfort in knowing Conrad had been caught, how that might bring closure to some of these men. He was very sensitive and cared a lot about people, had a deep sense of humanity. So I think he'd be excited and supportive and and, and deeply caring about that this has happened to him and to these others. And, and once he made sense of everything, I think he would definitely want to see these other men heal and along with him. The night of Conrad's arrest, Andrew had called me on my cell. I was just walking into the house, and my head was still spinning from the news. I wish I remembered to record the call, but basically, we both just marveled at how it all played out. If Andrew hadn't tipped me off to the story about Conrad and his brother... Hey, Mike, you don't know this about me and my family, but I wanted to share something personal. If someone hadn't made a random comment on a lightly read travel blog... Tim... Speaking of the UK, I have some Conrad Mainwaring gossip for you. If one man hadn't had the nerve to confront Conrad at the UCLA track. This guy molests young boys. He takes advantage of them and manipulates them like he molested me. If another squad member hadn't been at the track the very day of the confrontation, just hours after he himself says he was abused by Conrad. David described his story and it was nauseatingly similar to mine. If Bob Druger hadn't gone to a bar mitzvah and met a prosecutor who specialized in sex crimes. Even if you don't want to come out publicly, first of all, you should come out publicly. If the FBI hadn't passed the word to LAPD. If we hadn't told Benjamin about the investigation just in the nick of time. And if Benjamin hadn't worked up the courage to go to LAPD. Finally, I've got an in-statute case. I can do something with this. If all of those things hadn't conspired, either by fate or by chance, then Conrad Mainwaring might still be in the shadows. Conrad's criminal case is making its way through the courts with no trial date, and two of his accusers have filed separate civil lawsuits against some of Conrad's former employers, including Syracuse University and Camp Greylock. In response to the lawsuit, Syracuse said the same thing they told us earlier, that they weren't aware of the allegations until we first started reporting them. We reached out to Camp Greylock's lawyer again, but he didn't respond. Since the arrest, I've had conflicted feelings about the role Mark and I played in this story. On one hand, I'm proud of the work we did. We helped get an alleged sexual predator arrested. And I know we helped some of those guys get a bit of closure, or at least allowed them to stop suffering in silence. But here's the thing. While Mark and I move on to our next projects, it's not that simple for these guys. They all told us that even as they heal, they'll never really be able to forget Conrad. At the time of this recording, we've spoken to 52 men who say they were abused by Conrad. And during our interviews, we asked a lot of them what they'd want Conrad to know, what they'd say to him if they had the chance. So we thought we'd give them the last word. Here's John Shapiro, the restaurant owner from Los Angeles who told us about his nightmares. You know, you started in on me when I was just a child, and it's caused so much pain and misery. And everything you've ever told me and done was a lie. It was wrong. And it's taken so many years for me to 
correct myself in the right way of thinking. Here's Michael Waxman, the lawyer from Maine. I was a great 13-year-old kid. I was innocent, I was kind, I had a big heart. The world was in front of me. And you decided to come into my life to satisfy your own selfish needs with no regard whatsoever for me, for my future, for how I felt, for how you were hurting me. You had no right. And Tim DeSanto, the home designer whose blog became a gathering place for Conrad's accusers. Conrad, I think you have no idea the untold damage you've done to people and the suffering that you've caused people. And I hope that you consider it, seriously consider it, and can't get it out of your head for the rest of your life, just like all the untold victims that can't get it out of their head. And Robert Bender, who met Conrad on his first day at Syracuse. Don't you know how much damage you've done, that you've, like, taken your fingers and twisted people's minds and um, affected the whole course of their, some of their lives? And that how much pain that you've inflicted, and how, how could you do that? Why would you do that? And lastly, Vernon Sharples from the UK, the earliest of Conrad's victims that we know of. Conrad, I pity you. I pity you for the human being that you are, for the damage that you've caused. You can't have a conscience, because otherwise I don't know how you'd live with yourself. I'm still here. I'm still surviving. I've got my family. I've got people around me that love me. And, you know, I'm looking forward. I'm not looking over my shoulder. I'm looking forward. Thank you for listening to The Running Man. We'd like to acknowledge the accusers of Conrad Mainwaring, many of whom shared their stories. If you're a victim of sexual abuse and are looking for help, call Rain the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The number for their 24-hour helpline is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Thanks for listening to The Running Man, a podcast produced by ESPN's investigative team. The series was reported by Mike Kessler and Mark Fainaruwada. Writing by Mike Kessler, Mark Fainaruwada, and Joanna Clay. Executive Producers Connor Shell, Rob King, Kevin Merida, Patricia Mays, Chris Buckle, and Dwayne Bray. Senior Producers Mike Drago, Raina Banks, Michael Philbrick, Jody Avergan, and Greg Amonte. Additional reporting by Tanya Malinowski. Research and fact-checking, John Masterberadino. Production Managers Kath Sankey and Brittany Losey. Legal Review, Peter Shear. ESPN Audio, Tom Ricks and Megan Judge. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Neon Hum, executive producers Jonathan Hirsch and Vikram Patel, editor Catherine St. Louis, producer Joanna Clay, associate producer Haley Fager, production assistant Kate Mishkin. Additional music composition, Nicholas Carpenter and James Glaves. Sound design and engineering, Scott Somerville. Special thanks to Tanner Robbins. The Running Man is hosted by Mike Kessler. Mike Kessler.